Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Trump won handily in Iowa last night. Looks like around 50%, Haley around 20%. But the real headline is he also used Iowa to remind us that if returned to power, he has no intention of giving it up when his term would expire in 2029. First, the win as metaphor. He celebrated and boasted in Clive, Iowa, while the future cried in pain. And we did a job like, frankly, nobody has done in a long, long time. We didn't have terrorism. We didn't have people pouring into our country. That baby is us all. Now about Trump's implication that he would stay four years and beyond, which barely earned a postscript in the media's interminable self-congratulatory surface skim from the caucuses last night and Sunday because, first... The horror of the thing is more than your average political reporter can accept because that person still lives in the world of, he's not going to eat my face. And secondly, because of what is either Trump's mental deficiency or his greatest skill, he phrased this thing so vaguely that his remarks at Simpson College in Indianola, Iowa, were plausibly deniable, except for one small detail. I made the commitment and we kept you first in the nation. As long as I have anything to say about it and that we have a good chance of saying for four years, we'll have a lot to say about it, four years and beyond. Four years and beyond 
in power, four years and beyond in influencing whether Iowa goes first in the GOP primary, something else. It is that sleight of hand of ambiguity, the Trump loophole, and we know exactly where on Trump the loophole is. Trump is an artist in ambiguity, but here at least the ambiguity is irrelevant. Whatever he said in Indianola, he means four years and beyond in power. Because remember, after Bill Barr whitewashed the Mueller report for him, he floated the idea that two years should be added to his term and the 2020 election be postponed because he had been thwarted. And when that did not fly, he said that the election could go ahead as scheduled in 2020, but his first term should not count against the two-term limit because he'd been hoaxed. Since he lost in 2020, he has repeatedly said the 2024 election should be held earlier because the last one was so unfair to him. And we aren't even two weeks out from when one of his lawyers bluntly stated that so what if he'd been disqualified under the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment? He should still be president because the people said so. It should be the entire nation who determines who they want for president whether they're guilty of insurrection or not, it's up to the people. That was Christina Bob on the third of this month. And if you put all of it together, it is Trump saying not just the 14th Amendment does not apply to him, but the 22nd Amendment limiting a president to two terms also doesn't apply to him. And Article 2 of the Constitution scheduling a presidential election every four years also doesn't apply to him. And he's not just declaring himself above those laws, but he's signaling all of it clearly to his cult and yet fuzzing it up just enough that he doesn't get arrested. Moreover, it is clearer now than it has ever been, even when he talked about terminating the entire Constitution, that if returned to power, Trump will not again make what he now clearly views as the biggest mistake of his presidency, which was leaving office. He will be what he thinks is a dictator for only one day. He will be what the rest of the world thinks is a dictator until he dies. To get him out of there, we will have to go in and get him. This cannot be hammered home too often. This cannot be campaigned on too often. This cannot be the entirety of a Biden ad or speech too often. This has to be thrown out there every day with simmering rage so often and so obviously and so angrily that even the New York Times notices it. Trump's strategy is to manipulate the laws and manipulate the Constitution and manipulate the courts and regain office and stay there and then eliminate all the legal means of removing him and to enforce his will with violence dressed up as law and order. And democracy's strategy in return is, to paraphrase the ex-Republican Congressman Peter Meyer, to wait for Trump to die. Sure, that outcome is satisfying. Sure, some of his supporters whistling past graveyards is satisfying, like the MAGA idiot who boasted yesterday about how manly and strong Trump looked carrying eight pizza boxes all by himself. And sure, it's satisfying that the answer to the question, you know how old he looks, is he looks 206 
And sure, some of his blunders and some of his physical movements and, of course, the inevitability of the actuarial tables all suggest there might be some real change in the odds here. Waiting for him to die, nevertheless, ain't a strategy. He has visions of firing every federal official who is not personally loyal to him. He wants to immunize all cops everywhere from consequences for killing Americans. He wants to invoke the Insurrection Act, maybe on day one, and he wants to use the military to slaughter his opponents. We have visions of really big protests and a strongly worded letter to the editor that Jeff Bezos doesn't publish. Oh, and he is still stochastically terrorizing the justices of the Supreme Court about the cases about his eligibility that is coming before them. Simpson College, Sunday. We're going to make those decisions very soon, and I hope they do the right thing for the country. And if the threat against them, and with what can Trump actually threaten a Supreme Court justice who he appointed for life? Well, obviously the Trump threat is to end that life. If the threat against them is not disturbing enough, Trump long ago entered the pre-Messianic phase of all this, in which the idea that others should willingly die so he can live becomes something he can say aloud. Again, his actual skill is ambiguity. This demand that Iowa caucus goers go despite blizzards and hypothermia and death could be dismissed as hyperbole, as humor, except listen to it carefully. Trump seems to have stopped trying to sell the ambiguous option that this is, quote, humor. You must go caucus tomorrow. First step. First step. We're going to do it. We're going to do it big. You got to get out. You can't sit home. If you're sick as a dog, you say, darling, even if you vote and then pass away, it's worth it. Ha 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 He means it. One of the political science fiction outcomes long since postulated by those of us wondering what the surprise twist ending to this nightmare timeline could be involves Trump finally going too far, even for the Republicans, even for the fascists, even for the white supremacists, even for the most deranged of his cultists. Is there such a thing as Trump going too far? If he went full Jim Jones... If he did to them literally what he did to that idiot Vivek Ramaswamy figuratively, here, let's both drink the Kool-Aid. You first. Oh, sorry, I spilled mine. If he did that, would that stop them? Would the full Caligula stop him? You know, where he appoints a, a horse to a key political position and then declares himself a living God. Would that turn the cult off of him? Probably not. Now, if he were to declare himself bigger than God, and if he said something like, I will instruct God, or I will pray for God. We will pray for God, and we will be with God. Because we are one movement, one people, one family, and one glorious nation under God. Again, Trump in Iowa. And by the way, Trump uses the word God the way that one character in the Mean Girls movie used the word fetch. He has no idea what God is. 
or is supposed to be. It's like dogs. He has no idea what dogs are. Or his insistence that you have to produce ID to buy groceries. If you do not view the other beings around you as actual humans, if you see the world as entirely as the type of furniture that talks and the other type of furniture that doesn't talk, sooner or later, you will say something so remarkably offensive to your base that your base will destroy you. Of course, sadly, he might not do that until 2031. In year three of his 17th different invoking of the Insurrection Act, under which he canceled the 2028 election and ringed the White House with the U.S. military. Or ringed by people supplied by the guy who just gave Trump his latest celebrity endorsement, the confessed mob hitman Sammy the Bull Gravano who, when he flipped against the Genovese crime family, testified that the Genoveses controlled several New York building unions and a company called HRH Construction. And when anti-mob prosecutors finally brought HRH Construction down, it was because of corruption involving HRH's building of Trump Tower and Trump's Wallman Rink in Central Park. And HRH was one of Donald Trump's favorite builders and one of Fred Trump's favorite builders. And golly gosh, if this hadn't dawned on you and if it wasn't already bad enough, to some degree, great or small, Trump is also mobbed up. The other news out of Iowa last night is that the Nikki Haley surge is not about the Republican nomination. It is about a third party bid. Haley has now been endorsed by Larry Hogan, the ex-Maryland governor, ex-head of the no-labels Trump stalking horse outfit. And while he has positioned his support relative to the Republican nomination, it is obvious she will not get it unless Trump is literally removed by the 14th Amendment or other circumstances. And in endorsing her, Hogan said that though he had just left that group, quote, my position on no-labels has not changed, and now suddenly we are looking at two Trump-allied stalking horses running in order to dirty up President Biden and the supposedly sane Republicans being co-opted to destroy democracy. Because if you haven't noticed, the term sane Republicans is an oxymoron today as it was an oxymoron in 2000 and 1980 and 1964. If you had any remaining doubts about that or hopes about that, yesterday, Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa, who endorsed DeSantis, and whom Trump then viciously attacked, said, of course, she would support Trump as the nominee. Ramaswamy, who promised to pardon Trump, who Trump then attacked anyway, said, of course, he'd support Trump. Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, who endorsed Haley, who hasn't even lost next week's primary in New Hampshire yet, whom Trump attacked yesterday, said, of course, he'd support Trump as the nominee. And Haley as she still is trying not to lose to Trump in New Hampshire next Tuesday, Haley was careful not to endorse Trump yesterday, careful not to say she wouldn't run against Trump. But yesterday she did, of course, say she would support Trump over Biden. It's a cult. And the reward in the cult for selling your soul is power of some kind. How do they sleep at night? The one question I get more than any other is, how do they sleep at night? The answer is very, very easily. The demographics of this nation were inevitable for their party, and they meant extinction. Instead, 
Trump has given them what he gives their cult voters as well, power, and more importantly, power to be rewarded for being terrible people. Then speaking of terrible people, Dean Phillips, who is, putting him in the most positive light possible, who is the dog in the bowler hat in the this is fine fire meme, Dean Phillips held a Twitter X spaces conversation with Elon Musk and the Harvard ignored me, so I'm going to burn it down guy, Bill Ackman. And in this, Phillips mused about giving the two of them spots in his cabinet. I'm Elon Musk, secretary of drugs. He thought this because apparently it's important to Mr. Phillips to increase the chance that he will actually get literally zero votes in the Democratic primaries. Permit me to depress you just a little bit more before I offer the one glimmer of good news and then a little comic relief provided, as usual, by the remarkably stupid pornographer Marjorie Taylor Greene. Here's the depressing part from a new CBS News YouGov poll. Do you agree with Trump's statement that immigrants illegally entering this country are, quote, poisoning the blood of the nation? Republican primary voters, 81% agree. All voters, 47% agree. Which means the number of independents and Democrats who go along with baby Hitler here is somewhere around 7%. It's hard to pin the number down, extrapolating from just the final score. But whatever it is, it's 7% too many. And here is another nightmare from the same poll. Which is a bigger concern over the next few years, the U.S. having a functioning democracy or the U.S. having a strong economy? Republicans are happy to screw democracy for the sake of cash by 65% to 35%. Democrats still on team democracy by 64% to 36%. And no, it's not either or. The question was not phrased. You can have either a functioning democracy or a strong economy. Which do you pick? Maybe it should be phrased like that next time. But that 36% number among Democrats who prioritize the economy over the functioning democracy is still mortifying. The glimmer of good news from two other polls. There is the possibility that if and when Trump nails down the Republican nomination, the Biden-Trump race will suddenly tilt strongly towards Joe Biden. CNN had a story, the importance of which flew right over the head of every TV political pundit and over the head of CNN's own reporters, quoting sources with access to Biden internal polling and research that may explain what a lot of us have seen as, well, just visualize that dog in the blazing room, this is fine meme again. Biden campaign data indicates that among undecided voters, three out of four of them do not seem to believe that the Republican nominee will be Trump. CNN quotes one senior Biden official as saying, You can't conceive of how tuned out these folks are. Try me. Anyway, another quote, apparently from a different Biden campaign official, the realization will soon come, quote, oh, shit, it is an election between that guy and that guy, unquote. Three out of four undecideds are politically illiterate, 
and or in Trump denial? Impossible. Impossible? The Morris Berman book, The Twilight of American Culture, includes this. I'm quoting. A survey taken in October 1996 revealed that one in 10 voters did not know who the Republican or Democratic nominees for president were. That was 1996, less than one month before the 1996 election, by which point the Democratic nominee, if you've forgotten, had been president for three years and nine months. Now, this is a guess. I'm going way out on a limb here, no empirical evidence, but even with the invention of social media, I'm going to guess that voter imbecility has not improved since 1996. So when a YouGov poll from a week ago today had it, Biden 43, Trump 43, that's 14% undecided or other, and maybe one or two out of every 10 of them couldn't really place the names Biden and Trump. Plus, per the Biden research, seven or eight out of every 10 of them still really didn't believe Trump will be on the ballot. The other good news is a poll about that exact issue. On the ballot? Trump? Nah. It is the Ipsos ABC poll. It is specific. It is about how the Supreme Court should handle Trump and the 14th Amendment and the disqualifications in Colorado and Maine. And I have to admit, I am pleasantly surprised by this one. While the option with the highest percentage supports the court keeping him on the ballot everywhere, 39 percent, the other two options combined swamp that. 30 percent think the Supreme Court should throw him off the ballot everywhere, throw him off the ballot, not just in Colorado and Maine, but in the other 48 as well. 26 percent more think the court should let each state decide for itself. That is 56 to 39 in favor of at least state by state disqualification. Doesn't mean much. If Trump's stochastic calls for his mob to threaten to get the justices killed prevails with them, it does mean something, I think, if the court bends to those threats and the 56% could be mobilized to say, okay, Supreme Court, and how do you plan to enforce your ruling, which a clear majority of Americans oppose? I mean, if Trump's lawyer implies that a Supreme Court ruling that he is disqualified could be overruled by a tide of popular pro-Trump opinion, if we're playing by those rules now, why can't we say that the court has been fatally compromised by corrupt Republican politicians and its rulings on elections involving Republicans are therefore invalid and must be ignored? By the way, the last time I suggested something like this in June 2022, Marco Rubio sent me a strongly worded tweet saying, quote, it is a federal offense to incite rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, which was and is hilarious given Rubio's membership in the party that incited rebellion and insurrection against the authority of the United States and the laws thereof on January 6th, 2021. Also, Rubio said he'd never support Trump and Sunday at 3.26 p.m. Eastern, Rubio announced he was supporting Trump. Rubio is, as ever, hilariously, tone-deafly dishonest and immoral, but he is not the comic relief I promised you. This is, listen carefully, 
It's Barney Rubble's body double. The fact that Joe Biden would call his dad on the phone in his business meetings and deals shows that he was selling. Marge says Joe Biden is in phone contact with his father. Joe Biden? Joe Biden's father died in 2002. Joe Biden is in phone contact with him, Congresswoman? Huge if true. Also, Marge, if President Biden can talk to the dead by phone, you'd better be nicer to him. Also of interest here, the Baltimore Sun newspaper has just been sold to a fascist and a former columnist, a former columnist who took bribes from the Bush administration for favorable coverage of the Bush administration. And there's another ESPN scandal about what one reporter actually called ill-gotten Emmy Awards. It's actually more hilarious than scandalous. And we'll talk about it. That's next. This is an all-new edition of Countdown. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Postscripts to the news. Some headlines, some updates, some snark, some predictions. Dateline Smyrna, Georgia. Barry Loudermilk, who represents the white flight suburbs of Atlanta, is back in the news. He's, what do they call it, weaponizing the oversight subcommittee he chairs in the House. Here comes Trump cult revenge. Loudermilk, your friendly pre-January 6th tour guide, says that because whistleblower Cassidy Hutchinson fired her Trump-supplied stooge lawyer, Stefan Passantino, she had waived attorney-client privilege so he can subpoena her and subpoena him. And certainly he, the attorney, has to testify about what he was told by her in confidence. 
Representative Loudermilk is one of the dumber fascists, of course. Passantino barely avoided getting disbarred for trying to convince Hutchinson to lie to the January 6th committee and not tell them all she knew. So he might even have to invoke the Fifth Amendment if he does testify to protect himself. And of course, if Loudermilk actually pursues the camera, somebody... Somebody may finally dig into why he gave a tour of the Capitol, including of the congressional escape tunnels, on January 5th, even though the Capitol was closed due to COVID, and why, when the House committee asked him to testify about the tour, he replied by denying he ever gave reconnaissance tours. Even though nobody on the committee had mentioned the word reconnaissance. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Dateline Baltimore. Want to know why the fascists are winning? Things like this. The chairman of the far-right propagandist chain of TV stations, Sinclair, David Smith, last night announced he had bought the legendary newspaper The Baltimore Sun from the greedy but largely apolitically greedy Alden Capital. Smith's first statement upon becoming owner of The Baltimore Sun was to criticize the, quote, mainstream media. The Sun reported through gritted teeth that Sinclair didn't buy the paper. Smith did personally. Well, that's okay then. Of course, one of his minority investors is Armstrong Williams, a one-time conservative commentator who, if you have forgotten this story, took $241,000 in payments from the presidential administration of George W. Bush for favorable coverage of the presidential administration of George W. Bush in Armstrong Williams's columns. A fascist and a whore have bought the Baltimore Sun. And the number of liberal billionaires willing to underwrite newspapers or other news outlets, not to make money, but to make public opinion, that list consists of uh, Jeff Bezos. Remember when he was a liberal? Anybody else? Now, democracy dies in cheapness. Still ahead on this all-new edition of Countdown, did you see the latest on the ESPN scandal? Not that ESPN scandal with the quarterback defaming Jimmy Kimmel and the other guy defaming the executives. The other one about ESPN creating fake names to get Emmy Award trophies for on-air people who were denied eligibility for them. And it was impossible to unscramble the pseudonyms they used, like they used Eric Andrews, for Aaron Andrews. Who could ever have figured that out? It's a silly story, but it underscores a serious point. Nobody should feel sorry for the stars, but the producers and executives, and especially the Emmy committee members like to tell you what prima donnas the talent are in order to cover up the fact that their own egos are just as big or bigger. This isn't about the real Emmys from last night, but it's still a story I promised not to tell. Coming up. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, worse, 
Billow is back. Ah, I thought he was dead. Bill O'Reilly. And for you youngsters, he was the guy who discovered Jesse Waters for Fox. Now that it's years since he was on TV, it's hard to remember his infinite capacity to know everything, have his claims proved wrong, and then to insist he never made those claims, that he'd made the exact opposite ones. If it helps to understand Bill O'Reilly, he and Trump used to sit together at the Yankee games. And the seats were free for them. Anyway, when Ron DeSantis began the book banning in Florida in 22, Bill O was, of course, an enthusiastic supporter. But now, as mentioned here last week, the Escambia County School District in the Florida Panhandle has taken the new book banning law literally and removed all books, quote, alleged to contain pornography or obscene depictions of sexual conduct. Like, you know, news accounts of the chairman of the Florida Republican Party's love life. Anywho, Escambia County banned more than a thousand books, including Killing Jesus, A History by Bill O'Reilly and Killing Reagan by Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly's response, this will not stand. The show is gone. The pomposity is undamaged. The hypocrisy is intact. Bravo, sir. Bravo. Honestly, what do I care? I'm out of Fox to give. Runner-up worse, David Hookstead of the truly vile website Outkick the Coverage. When Saturday's NFL playoff game at Buffalo was postponed for two days until yesterday because of a blizzard, Hookstead, like many sports guys who have become untethered from the real world, lashed out in anger that he would have to wait for the game. On social media, he wrote, quote, Did we cancel D-Day because of a little rough weather? No, play the damn game. This nitwit Hookstead was immediately community noted with simple eloquence, quote, D-Day was delayed by a day because of the weather. But the winner, the worst, speaking of the weather, Laura Loomer, the Trumpist lunatic. It's hard to say which adjective applies more to her. She's also upset about the weather. Quote, is the deep state activating harp? To disrupt the Iowa caucus, we all know Nikki Haley has a lot of friends in the defense industry, military-industrial complex. Is the deep state using harp to rig the Iowa caucus? Looks like weather manipulation to me. Harp is a program, H-A-A-R-P, at the University of Alaska. It was formerly at the Department of Defense. It studies the upper part of the atmosphere, the ionosphere, and naturally because it's fairly complicated and you probably have to not be a moron like Laura Loomer to understand the premise of it, she and the other paranoids think it is used to control the weather. Two things about people like her always strike me first. This is akin to what I said earlier about Marge Green. If they do believe that Joe Biden has the controls in his hands to manipulate the weather, why do they think he would keep this quiet rather than just say, you will do what I say or you will get eight feet of snow tomorrow? Or more positively, why wouldn't he send rainstorms to put out wildfires and then take all the credit? But secondly, and more importantly, I'm seeing a slight inconsistency here. Laura Loomer and the other clowns don't believe in climate change or that humans can impact the climate even with centuries of pollution, but they do believe that the U.S. government can control the weather and manipulate it on a city-by-city -city basis on a few hours' notice. In other words, they're morons. Laura, climate change isn't real. 
climate manipulation is real loomer. Today's worst person in the world, Biden made it rain frogs. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month no matter what kind of entertainment you love addicted to true crime catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on a e crime central crave adventure explore asian action movies on hayah searching for something extreme check out skating snowboarding and more on fuel tv plus the global home of action sports and find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's hit nation playlist there's new free shows and movies to love every week say free this week in your xfinity voice remote the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic me and things i promised not to tell the website the athletic has reported that my old friends at espn had for years been gaming the system at the sports emmy awards bribing voters no trying to push the voting by nominating stories about the judges or about the places they were from no otherwise tampering with the process of who got nominated or who won or anything like that? No. Their crime was adding to the list of nominees fictional names so that if their shows won, they would be able to get extra trophies that could be re-engraved and given to people who were not eligible to win those Emmy Awards. Those people were the hosts and reporters of the show. Rather incredibly, until the last few years, if a network submitted one of its shows for Best Studio Sportscast or one of several other categories, virtually everybody who worked on the show was eligible. NBC won the Emmy for the Outstanding Live Sports Special in 2022, and NBC, in its submission, listed all the executives, the producers, the directors, the associate producers, everybody down to the stage managers. Literally... 365 different sports people. And if they shelled out the money or if the network did it for them, they all got an actual Emmy Award. Not one anchor or reporter among them. Now, obviously, this concerns me far more than it does you. 
And don't get me wrong, I do not begrudge any of those 365 winners their Emmys, including the nine stage managers, and it looks like I worked with like three of them and they were great. Counting them up, I saw literally dozens of names of friends and former colleagues, and they were all great. But the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences did not permit adding even just the lead anchors and reporters from the 2022 Olympics or any other nominated best show if they were on the air. The official explanation for this curiosity was they didn't want anybody, quote, double dipping getting an award for best anchor, best reporter, and getting another Emmy if the show they were anchoring won best show. There are just five different categories for people on the air in the sports Emmys. That's it. 365 Emmys were given out to the producers and stage managers from the Olympics, and five were given out to all the people on the air at the Olympics, on the NBA broadcasts, football play-by-play, sports centers, post-game shows, pardon the interruptions, baseball, curling, darts, whatever. Now, practically speaking, that is not literally true. Because of the ESPN dodge, which I will grant is hilarious and which I'll get to in a moment. But there was also the dodge used by MLB Network and other operations over the years. In 2020, when its show MLB Tonight won the Emmy for Best Daily Live Sports Series... MLB Network submitted the name of 63 different producers. Among them were Greg Amsinger, and that's a coincidence. There's also a Greg Amsinger who was the primary anchor of MLB Tonight. And then there's a producer named Bob Costas. Huh. And another producer named Peter Gammons. And my friends Ron Darling, producer and ex-Yankees manager Joe Girardi, producer, and Harold Reynolds, producer, who I've known for 33 years and Baseball Hall of Famers Pedro Martinez, producer, and Jim Tomey, producer, who I once nearly ran over with a golf cart in Arizona, but I'll tell that story some other time. Pedro Martinez, who I got started in television at Turner in 2013, won an Emmy in 2020 as a producer of MLB Tonight. Not as an analyst, because you couldn't give an Emmy to an analyst, even if he was the best thing on MLB tonight, if he was. No Emmys for those lousy talent. Didn't they get enough honors as it is? We're giving out five of them. And money, don't they get all the money? And you know what? That's fine, too. From my first day in television, August 3rd, 1981, somewhere around 1, 2 p.m., the fourth or fifth hour of my television career, I thought, and I think I said it aloud to the producer, that I did not understand why anybody would work in television if they were not on the air. If the job fills the yawning maw of your insatiable ego, you know, like it does mine, that's great. Makes sense. Being on TV has given purpose to the lives of lots of us who would otherwise have spent our entire lives just standing in front of a mirror talking to ourselves. Maybe holding a microphone as we did so. A microphone that was not plugged into anything. But there are only two things that ever bring any attention to these sports Emmy Awards and the news Emmys and the entertainment Emmys. How many awards go to each network and who won those five little awards for best sports personalities? Maybe once in a while, an unlikely show will win for best studio show and it will get a little attention on Twitter for like three hours. But otherwise, nobody writes up those 
365 different trophies given out to NBC's 2022 Olympic non-on-air staff. And I think there is a little hypocrisy here because the on-air people are used for publicity, such as it is, while there was this horrible fear that they might win too many awards for just one show or that adding them to the list of the real nominees would make the lists too long. I mean, 365 Olympic Emmy Award winners is just right. But 385 would have been a nightmarish embarrassment. Anyway, finally to the athletic report on how ESPN gamed the system until the rule about, quote, talent, unquote, was changed for, I believe, 2023. I'll quote a part of the athletic story. The Emmy administrators, quote, uncovered a scheme that the network used to acquire more than 30 of the coveted statuettes for on-air talent ineligible to receive them. Since at least 2010, ESPN inserted fake names in Emmy entries, then took the awards won by some of these imaginary individuals, had them re-engraved, and gave them to on-air personalities. Ooh. Describing this as fraud and as ill-gotten Emmys, Katie Strang of The Athletic somehow managed to sleuth out this clever, almost indecipherable series of immoral substitutions. Quoting her again, names similar to the names of on-air personalities and with identical initials were listed all under the title of associate producers. Ms. Strang gave the fake names and then helpfully followed the fake names with parentheses, which contained the real names of those evil talent who by fraud and deception and trickery and an utter disregard for the sacred sanctity of the Emmy Awards possession of young unsuspecting and vulnerable trophies that they did not deserve quote kirk henry parenthesis kirk herbstreet lee clark parenthesis lee corso dirk howard parenthesis desmond howard and tim richard parenthesis tom rinaldi stephen ponder parentheses, Sam Ponder, and Gene Wilson, Gene Wojciechowski, Chris Fulton, Chris Fowler, tell Fowler I can hear him, and Shelly Saunders, Shelly Smith. How did anyone ever figure out these aliases reflective of evil masterminds at ESPN? My God, did the Athletic hire the World War II code breakers from Bletchley Park? Who would have ever believed that Dirk Howard and Desmond Howard were the same person? I bet some of those crack MLB Tonight MLB Network producers could have done that detective work. Producer Pedro Martinez, perhaps, or producer Jim Tomey. Or producer Bill Ripken, Cal's brother. Seriously, don't those names seem a little too obvious? I mean, if you're trying to trick somebody into thinking the award is not for Sam Ponder, why do you write Stephen Ponder? Somebody observed on social media that these names sound like the names in a sports video game when you can't get the rights to the real players' names. Why is the Kansas City quarterback named Patrick Your Holmes? The Emmys did not crack down on MLB Network, as near as I know anyway. It certainly wasn't mentioned in the athletic piece. It did not crack down on MLB Network listing all of its on-air guys as producers so they could get trophies. 
Doesn't it seem plausible that the use of the phony names, and phony is doing a lot of work in this sentence, the use of the barely phony names, was the Emmy committee looking the other way as ESPN tried to get a couple of trophies for its reporters and anchors? I mean, 30 over 13 years, that's not a lot. The problem here is somebody at the Emmys found out called ESPN on it. ESPN made those on-air people give the trophies back. And there is, at least in the Athletics article, the implication that maybe a couple of producers were fired by ESPN for doing this. It's madness. And there are two other serious components to this, and obviously one of them is going to be about me. I have been nominated for like 15 Emmys over the years, 20, 25 Local sports, network sports, network news, I have never won. I am the Susan Lucci of sports and news Emmys. Actually, that is a bad comp. Susan Lucci finally won an Emmy in 1999. Me, I am O since 1981. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this, none of which really matters, but the primary of which is roll of the dice. I got nominated against Bob Costas twice in three years in the 90s, and who's going to win that battle? He would. He did. Then he came over sheepishly, and he apologized. Why the guys who are only on once a week like me are pitted against the guys who are on every night like you, I can't understand. If Bob had not been a great friend of mine before that, he sealed it with that remark. On the other hand, there was a lot of corruption in the local Emmys. They are judged by panels in other cities, or at least they were when I was in local news. And in early 1988, apparently, the news director of the NBC affiliated station in Toledo, Ohio, found out that Emmy voters in Toledo would be voting on that year's awards for Los Angeles. So somebody thought, let's game this system. The award submitted by KNBC in Los Angeles for best sports reporting for 1988 was about Morgana the Kissing Bandit, the buxom dancer who used to run onto the field during baseball games and kiss the players. And she lived in Toledo, Ohio. So sure enough, that year, the guy at KNBC in Los Angeles beat me out for best local TV sports reporting in Los Angeles because he had submitted a report consisting entirely of Benny Hill-style sight gags in which Morgana the Kissing Bandit of Toledo, Ohio, chased him around. All I had in my lousy submission was the day I exclusively broke the story that the Los Angeles Kings were trading five players and $15 million to Edmonton for Wayne Gretzky. Great report, loser. I know. What kind of reporting is that compared to Morgana the Kissing Bandit? So anyway, when they gave him that award, my girlfriend and my agent and I stood up and left. But I'm not a bad loser. Just a vengeful one. One year I was really pissed about not getting an Emmy. In 1999 and 2000, in addition to five nights a week on the Fox cable version of SportsCenter, I also hosted the pregame and postgame shows wrapping around the Fox Network Baseball Game of the Week. These were, to say the least, arduous days, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. on a Saturday, invariably a beautiful day in Southern California. And it was made doubly arduous 
by my analyst, Steve Lyons, as sleazy and as disagreeable man as anybody with whom I have ever worked. Steve Lyons made homophobic jokes on the air. He criticized a Jewish player for not playing on Yom Kippur. He implied a Latino manager had stolen his wallet. Later, his career ended after a domestic battery charge. And when he wasn't doing all that, Lyons mastered and specialized in one other thing. Complaining. I mean, the makeup artist on our show once thanked me for never complaining, and I said, but I complain all the time. And she said, not even close. Anyway, two years of this. The first year, 1999, the winner for the Emmy for Best Live Studio Sports Show was not SportsCenter, was not the NFL Today on CBS. It was Fox MLB pregame, me and Lions. He did not get an Emmy. I did not get an Emmy. The producers got Emmys. To their credit, the people at Fox said they were going to try to get me one, and they did not succeed. It was against the rules. And we had not thought of the little bit of a deke here and putting me in as an associate producer under the name Teeth Alderman. The next year, 2000, the winner for the Emmy for the Best Studio Analyst was Steve Lyons. He got an Emmy. My boss on the show said not only should I have gotten his Emmy, but, quote, you should have gotten a second one for carrying that buffoon on your back every week. But personal whining aside, I mean, honestly, what would happen if I won an Emmy now for some reason? I mean, you think anybody would ever remember that? If I am remembered, it'll be for not ever winning an Emmy. I keep coming back to this idea, finally corrected in 2022, that the awards are for the producers and not those whiny prima donnas, the talent. When I was 29, I moved from one L.A. TV station to another. In fact, it was just a couple of weeks after that Gretzky story that lost out to Morgana the Kissing Bandit. The new station was KCBS, and I already knew everybody there because for three years I had been popping by their station every day to do afternoon drive sportscasts on their all-news radio station. And I had gotten to know and delight in knowing the company of one of my fellow KNX and soon-to-be KCBS sportscasters, Gil Stratton. Gil had been the first sports guy on the local news in L.A. in 1954, and he did the play-by-play -play for the Rams games on the CBS network, and they wanted him to move to New York to be the face of CBS sports. Are you kidding? Gil told them. I'm from New York. Why would I leave L.A. to move back to New York? In L.A., Gil was the star until he retired to Hawaii to run his own radio station about 1976. It didn't go well. And now, again, we're in 1988, he was back in L.A., but at the bottom of the L.A. sports totem pole. Saturday mornings on radio, he was the backups, backup on television, and Gil did not care. Beats a real job, he used to tell me with a smile, plus... I make more now in this building than I did 15 years ago, even adjusted for inflation. Anyway, if the name Gil Stratton seems vaguely familiar to you, or maybe more than vaguely, it was because he was also an actor. I hope you have seen the movie Stalag 17, one of the all-time classics about prisoners in a World War II military prison camp in Germany. If you haven't seen it, turn off the podcast, go watch the movie, then come back to me. Stalag 17 
William Holden is the star. His right-hand man is Gil Stratton. Gil was also in The Wild One with Marlon Brando and in Girl Crazy with Judy Garland and about two dozen TV series, and he spent a year as a lead in a Broadway musical. The day before I was to join Channel 2 as sports director and nominally as Gil's boss, Gil sat me down in the lunchroom and said he wanted to warn me about something. You need to know, he said, that the executives here are the biggest bunch of prima donnas I have ever seen. The general manager sent me on an assignment for the station, and they had gotten everything wrong. Wrong city, wrong building, wrong day, wrong person to interview. When I got back and told him I had managed to get him a soundbite, despite all the screw-ups, but that was going to be it, he burst into tears. Gil laughed. And while I'm at it, you're young enough, maybe you, you still believe that, that we are the prima donnas? Take it from me. I've been doing this and Hollywood and Broadway for 47 years. The producers and the studio executives and the TV executives have created this fiction that we are all impossibly difficult to work with and we are all ego. And it's them. They are the prima donnas. Listen, I rode motorcycles, Gil said, with Brando. I chased girls with Holden. I kissed Judy Garland flush on the lips. And they were all supposed to be prima donnas, and none of them, not even Judy Garland on her worst day, was as much of a prima donna as the blasted general manager of this television station. So needless to say, there is an existential dispute here. We get the money and the fame, or what's left of the money and the fame now that television is dying, in exchange for which we get all the pot shots. And the athletic piece about the fake names, and I left out Eric Andrews, which apparently was code for Aaron Andrews. They changed one letter. Genius. I mean, as unsolvable as the Sphinx. Who would ever know that Eric Andrews was supposed to be Aaron Andrews? The athletic piece about the fake name contained one anonymous pot shot that really underscored the everlasting lie that Gil Stratton told me about so many years ago. Quote, when asked why people at the network would scheme to secure trophies for on-air talent, one person involved in the ESPN Emmy submission process in recent years said, quote, you have to remember that those personalities are so important and they have egos. Uh, tell me again who submitted a list of 365 NBC producers and directors and stage managers for an Emmy for one Olympics? Was it Judy Garland on her worst day, or was it an off-air television executive? Spoiler alert, it wasn't Judy Garland. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Ray was on guitars, bass, and drums, and Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards, and it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some of the Beethoven compositions, were arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. Sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc., 
Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David, and everything else was pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 295th day until the 2024 U.S. presidential election and the 1,106th day since Dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of this nation. Use the 14th Amendment, the Insurrection Act, and the justice system to stop him from doing it again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants and the voice permits, and it was pretty good today. Till whenever, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.